Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Did you ever meet two kids like Dennis and Sue Ann? We think not. They're quite a pair in Pretty Poison. Dear Dennis, he's clean cut. The outdoor type. Hard working. But there are a few things about Dennis most people don't know. You mean all the things in the letter were true? What, what, what? What, setting fire to your aunt's house and burning her up alive? And then there's Sweet Sue Ann. What an all-American doll. High school sweetheart, honor student, but... <laughs> How long is it gonna take? Not long. You'll know. Acting very funny. You go to your room. Make me. Don't say a word. That's perfectly natural. We're under surveillance. Anthony Perkins is Dennis. I'll blow up cities, I'll rape and burn and destroy property, and these are laws! Laws must be abided! Give me two weeks, two weeks to keep my nose clean. Dennis! Look, we're talking about my life, Mr. Asnow, we're talking about my one and only life! Tuesday well, as Sue Ann. Let's continue, huh? Pretty poison. I hit him twice. You see, he started to go down, and then I bopped him on the side of the head. What a week... <sighs> I met you on Monday, fell in love with you on Tuesday, Wednesday I was unfaithful, Thursday we killed a guy together, how about that for a crazy week, Sue
something exciting. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Bill Ackerman. Hey, great to be back. Also back in the booth is Mr. Darren Williams. Look so innocent. What a damn deceptive world. On this episode, we are looking at Noel Black's Pretty Poison. Released in 1968, the film stars Anthony Perkins as Dennis Pitt, a troubled young man with an overly active imagination. He works at a chemical company that's spilling waste into a nearby river. He meets a local teenager, Sue Ann Stepanek, played by Tuesday Weld, and recruits her into his imaginary network of spies, only to find out that she's far more dangerous than he could ever pretend to be. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you don't want anything ruined, please turn off the podcast and come back after you've seen it. So, Bill, when was the first time you saw Pretty Poison, and what did you think? The first time I saw Pretty Poison would have been in the very early 90s. I would have been in high school. Uh, I taped it off of either Prism or Cinemax and had been looking for it because I was a big fan of uh, Danny Perry's book called Movies, which has a chapter on it. So I want to say this was actually the first film I saw because of that book that I didn't already come to that book already having seen. And uh, so it was actually probably the first quote unquote rare film I ever had because it wasn't out on videotape, like just straight TV screenings were the only way you could see it other than like repertory. Uh, and I loved it. I mean, it was a great discovery. At the time, I was young enough that I hadn't really seen a lot of things that people compare it to. Like, I hadn't seen Blue Velvet. I hadn't seen Badlands or Gun Crazy. Heavenly Creatures hadn't been made yet. So, um, you know, I didn't really have a lot of things to compare to other than Psycho, which I had seen. And I thought it was such an interesting companion to Psycho because I assume most people that saw Pretty Poison went in with that expectation about what Anthony Perkins is up to and kind of plays with those expectations. And and Tuesday Weld, I think I only knew from reruns of Dobie Gillis. So like I only really had a, like a TV kind of sitcom impression of her. And it really kind of uh, made me excited to check out what she was about as an actress and like reading about things like Lord Love a Duck and Played as a Laze. It was a great kind of rabbit hole to go down after seeing her in this. I think it was just, it felt like 60s television turned dark because it like it, I think I associate her with like a certain kind of innocent television and even just the way that the town and the dialogue, everything felt kind of more like what I associated with television more than film, but like 60s TV grown sinister, which I think I, you know, even as a young teenager, I really, I really appreciated that aspect of it. And Darren, how about yourself? Uh, late 90s to early 2000s, I was on the tape trading scene and, you know, remember what it was like, you used to get lists of films with no context, no explanation at all, and you'd end up just researching them to see what was worth trying. Pretty Poison just leapt out to me, and yeah, I absolutely adored it from the off. I was, I found it quite shocking. I was surprised at how funny it was the first time I saw it, and how I didn't realize Lorenzo Semple was the writer, so that kind of, yeah. But yeah, I've absolutely adored it ever since, and I, it's one I return to quite often. I'm trying to remember when I first saw this. I definitely saw it on VHS, though I think it was sent to me by a friend of mine. This, if if my friend Rich didn't turn me on to this movie, it definitely feels like something that he should have. Especially, absolutely gorgeous blonde leading lady. That's so much his style to to send me movies like that. And yeah, just this twisted sense to it and watching this the first time i mean i never i never buy that tony perkins is a cia agent because we have that opening and closing but we've got that opening uh bookend 
with him and his basically parole officer. And had we not had that, I don't know if I would have bought him as a CIA agent. I mean, he is squirrely enough and puts forth this kind of manic energy. And I should just say that all of the performances in this movie are just top notch, but Perkins and Weld are just phenomenal. And the way that they play off of each other throughout this whole thing, the way that they have this power exchange and especially how things flip as the movie goes along. Wow. Uh, and that's what got me. That's what really got me when I watched this the first time was see that relationship shift and to realize, oh, wow, this all-American apple pie, you know, leading the majorettes uh, or majorette in the marching band. You know, you, we've got this great march going on at the beginning or for our opening credits. And I'm just like, wow, she's way more twisted than he could ever hope to be. That just really puts me on, uh, on a happy path. Every time I see um, this film again, Birkin's speeches whenever he's a CIA whenever he's doing the CIA speeches to Tuesday World. Perhaps it's knowing who the writer was, but it just puts me in mind of Adam West in Batman. Ah. <laughs> it's just, just the tone of the speech and the way he plays it. That overly serious, deadpan, straight style when he's talking, it, cliches that come out. It just reminds me so much of that. And Do we think, though, that even Tuesday World leaves the CIA at the beginning? Because I don't. No, I never think that. I think that she's always no. playing playing a game with him from the beginning. I have a hard time as far as when does she know? Does she know right from the get-go or is it pretty soon thereafter? And I'm not sure. And, I, I, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay if she knows right away and I'm okay if she figures out, I mean, not that much later, you know, maybe when they're in the car together at the make-out point, you know, like, but it's pretty darn soon if it's not immediate because she... She definitely knows as the story is unfolding and just starts to play with him that way. And especially, you know, we're, we're going to talk about a murder that happens, especially when after that, and she just starts doing this. Does the CIA cover that, Dennis? I was thinking about that title because um, Pretty Poison was, of course, the retitling of uh, She Let Him Continue was the novel and was the original shooting title. And I think that Pretty Poison, I mean, it could apply to the the chemicals that are colorfully, you know, polluting the water. But I mean, it, it clearly sets up that you know, who's the pretty poison in the story. She's got to be it. I mean, so like I, I was wondering how many people thought she was an innocent going into the film versus like a, uh, a film noir, you know, femme fatale kind of bad seed, you know, kind of character. Because I, I think I always knew, and I don't even know that I read the synopsis in the book, cult movies before I watched it cold, but I think I always assumed she was she was bad news because of the title. That's why I chose that quote for the opening, because I think that just sums up the movie. It encapsulates it perfectly. What a damn deceitful world for world when he's looking at the uh, vial. And he's talking about her as well. He doesn't realize how much he's missing and how much is, you know, is just right in front of him. Because this film is full of foreshadowing. It's in everything. It's in the newspaper report. It's in every single part of the film. It's setting it up, and he's just missing it right up until the point. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. When uh, Sam is at the Night Watchman, but right until the point he dies, then he gets it. Then he starts to realize. When I first watched it, I think I was started watching with a slight nervousness of, oh, is he manipulating her? Well, how is this going to go? But then very quickly caught on that, oh, yeah, she's a psychopath. She's worse than him in every way. When they're talking about the true crime story in the newspaper, I mean, he's explaining, oh, it sounds like entrapment. She's too innocent. Like he already is intelligent enough to recognize that kind of scenario from the outside. The fact that he, at what point he realizes he's in that scenario, he's just going to follow through with it anyway, I think is so interesting. And and that it kind of throws you in the novel and in the film that, uh, like he he doesn't make a go of it. Like after the the murder is committed, he just turns them in. Like it's so anticlimactic in a way. But I think that that's not really the kind of film they're telling to have them go on the run, like a Bonnie and Clyde or something. Like, like it is about him giving up and not really being the psycho killer that everyone assumes he is. Like you're saying, all the foreshadowing. I mean, I love I love the cutting in this movie. I love the editing, especially when he's at his factory job. You know, he runs away from his parole officer, Mr. Eisenhower, played by the amazing John Randolph in this. Initially, we see him in his shitty little trailer, and he's got these Russian shortwave announcements coming through. And and so if we started with that, it might be, ooh, is he a Russian agent here? But we already kind of know that he's got a troubled history, and we've got him doing that, handing over this little spy camera to his landlady, Mrs. Bronson. I guess he might own the land, I don't or the trailer, or both, or whatever. Uh, who uh, She's married to the man that runs the garage in which the trailer is parked in front of. And this whole, like, oh, leave this in your own name. Like, don't use my name for when you get this film processed. And when he goes to work, the way that he sits at this line and he's got this amazing magnifying glass in front of his face that just totally distorts his face as well as anything that he's looking at. And I love all of those vials of poison coming down the line or vials of chemicals and that he starts to hear the music of the marching band from the credit sequence and really sees each one of those little vials as one of those marchers coming down the line. And then eventually something gets gummed up in the works and they start being destroyed. I mean, yeah, talk about foreshadowing, talk about symbolism. This movie has it in spades and there's so many great shots of things being distorted. There's later on, there's this, um, I mean, it runs through the whole thing, but this restaurant or little uh, hot dog stand that they uh, are next to or that is constantly in the movie. And there's some great shots of her being distorted through these glasses that are up front. And I think he even gets distorted by those glasses as well. So really nice way to show us that there's more to these characters than just the surface. It's also the first time that we've shown that sex in Pretty Poison equals danger in some way. Because it's such a sexual metaphor, seeing the pounding of the gears and machinery. And even when everything goes wrong, it's this huge burst of steam goes up. It's just a 
running theme through it that I think everyone is slightly sexually damaged in this film in one way or another. I don't remember him having the affair with Mrs. Bronson in the novel, but I know that the script had it and they shot a scene that they didn't think worked. And then that scene is eliminated from the film and they don't even allude to it at all in the remake. But there was supposed to be sexual tension with the landlady and I think supposed to be sexual tension with Mrs. Stepanek that feel like it's downplayed in the film. I know that was Beverly Garland did an interview where she said she was kind of playing it like she was interested in him. I didn't, I've never seen it that way. And I never really saw sexual chemistry with Dennis and the landlady in the film either. Like it just felt like even when he's embarking in a sexual relationship with Sue Ann, it's like initially when she's talking about like, oh, I think, you know, they're about to do it. You know, it's talking about the boyfriend of the, of the, of the mother he changes the subject back to the spy stuff. Like he's not willing to even really engage it as a conversation. Like it's very tentative because he's, you know, sheltered 15 year old that's just out in society for the first time again. And like sexuality is what put him away in the first place with the uh, playing doctor. So it's like, he's always got this kind of connection like you're saying between, yeah, sex and, and uh, you know, harmful consequences. I was thinking about that because, you know, this film, the novelization, well, the novel, you know, the repackaging of the novel as the smash film, the now generation like they're pushing it for 60s counterculture generation and i think about that film as being so not conservative but i think that it's it's really trying to play to everybody and not really catering to the youth audience the way that producer was it lawrence terman he did the graduate right before that and there's no pop music there's no pretty poison theme song or whatever like it's not like other films that noel black did later like cover me babe like there's I mean, all the marching band stuff, it feels like very traditional, like it's a very Americana kind of feel, which I think keeps it from dating in a way that a lot of other late 60s films aimed at young people would date. Like it doesn't have any allusions to Vietnam or drugs other than like the pills that he saw up. So like it's really feels more like 60s television in that way. Like it's not trying to challenge the status quo in any way, but it's still trying to appeal to young people, but showing them as dangerous in some cases. Oh, I think it's definitely doing a challenge to the status quo in the film. And just because of what it's saying about America and what it's saying about American symbology, especially the flag, we've got this whole time, we see at the start, Dennis is ever vigilant, he's ever taken photos, and he's always in a blue shirt through the film. And blue in the American flag is meant to represent vigilance, but like all the, what the colors are supposed to represent, they get distorted through this film. And I think what the film is asking is, what's America doing to its children and what's America doing to its environment? I think it is quite subversive in its own way. Yeah, there are so many nice moments of just casual littering. (laughs) At the end, the guy who runs the hot dog stand, he throws his garbage into the river, but then he turns around and he's like polishing his motorcycle. It's just like, what are you doing? You're destroying the environment, but the motorcycle's the important thing to you. So... I love that there is this theme of kind of environmentalism at, that's going through here. And of course, this is way pre-EPA. This is what America was doing. You know, it was crazy that just the amount of garbage that was being pumped into our fresh water at this time, almost as much as today, I'm sure. Yeah, but it feels like a fake out, though, because it's like it is exposing that, but it's not like you see the effects of that pollution, like no one's getting sick from it. Like it doesn't. Like, it feels like it's setting you up for, like, a Silkwood kind of thing or Aaron Brockovich, but it's it's just a decoy so that you're not paying attention to the obvious threat. And just to go back to something else Bill was saying, I think the Mrs. Bronson stuff is in the book, isn't it? 
I think he does sleep with her in the book because it's the same thing as in the, the screenplay that didn't get filmed. She promises him a job and then Mr. Bronson has to come and say to him, oh, there are no jobs. Yeah, there's nothing for you. But I think he sleeps with her before that because there are a couple of times where she comes to his well, trailer, basically. I can't remember what he's actually living in in the book, if it is still the trailer or not. But she comes in a couple of times and she's trying to seduce him. And I think that one time when she promises a job, he does actually go through with it. Couldn't remember. Yeah, I, I remember there's like scenes with like the tension, him kind of recoiling from it. I couldn't remember. It's, I believe really read it the time. But... Well, it's really weird that they have, and we'll talk about the remake later on, but in the remake, they really play up that sexuality of the landlady. Like she's just, you know, staring holes into him at one point, but then they never come through with it. And so the line that, and it betrays that there's this missing scene of the seduction. I met you on Monday. Fell in love with you on Tuesday. Wednesday, I was unfaithful. Thursday, we killed a guy together. How about that for a crazy week, Suhan? Unfaithful Wednesday. <laughs> I was just joking, Suhan. That was in another country. Forget it. But then they change it in the remake to be like, uh, you know, we did something else on Wednesday. There was no mention of being unfaithful. And I'm just like, oh, okay, well, you really had a better chance in this one, Dennis, because Mrs. Bronson in this one is really into you. Fell in love with you on Wednesday is what he says. And I think she is a little, though, when she walks into the, to the trailer in one scene where Perkins is sitting in basically just his underwear, you can see her looking him over in that scene. So it's obviously they were thinking of it, but they just didn't bother to film it. I'm not sure how well it would have worked if they had filmed it either. Can I ask, how old do you think Dennis is meant to be? He's meant to be 22 in the book. Yeah, it feels like he's maybe early 20s in the movie. Definitely older than Sue Ann, but I wouldn't say by much. I mean, she's only 17, and I would say he's maybe 24, 25 at most in the movie. I think it's just that weird thing of coming into it with a knowledge of Perkins already and knowing that this was eight years after Psycho and looking at him and definitely, especially for the 60s, he looks like it. I think he was 37 when he filmed this and he looks like a young 37, definitely. But he never really looks young enough to be dating Tuesday World, I think. And when mother is so upset about the idea of going out, I was just, why aren't you upset about her going out with this Clearly adult man. <laughs> Why isn't that the problem here? It was a different time, Darren. It was, yeah. You were talking about the music that was used in The Graduate and that this is kind of timeless, and I agree with that. Though it's funny that Terman, the reason why he hired uh, Johnny Mandel to do the score, he was just like, oh yeah, Johnny Mandel, he's doing all these hit songs and stuff. What was the Shadow of Your Smile was one. This was a few years still before he wrote uh, Suicide is Painless, at least the music to it. I think it was Altman's son that wrote the lyrics. Terman really wanted a, a romantic score, but he ended up with kind of a, you know, I would say that this score is very appropriate to it. Yeah, it's, it's a great, great score. Uh, unfortunately, it's never, as far as I know, ever been released, but yeah, I think it works really well. And with Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. And I think had they had a contemporary song, this film would feel very dated. Yes, of course, the outfits and those kind of things, we can tell when this is being uh, taking place. But it just has this kind of timeless quality to it. And that I think had they, even the end, you know, using the marching band music again at the end is a really smart choice as opposed to theme from Pretty Poison comes up on the uh, soundtrack and we hear somebody crooning a, a song about, you know, it may look beautiful, but don't touch it kind of thing. Like, we don't not need that, you know? I may be misremembering this, but when the opening credits happen, don't doesn't Pretty Poison appear right beneath the um, majorettes, that's the name for them, isn't it? Not cheerleaders. Doesn't it appear right beneath them? Like, the, how much more foreshadowing can you get than in that moment? Speaking of foreshadowing, I think one of the most important scenes in the film, once you read the screenplay, is actually that cinema visit when he arranges to meet her there. Because originally that was supposed to be a James Bond film. In the script, they, I think they mean Goldfinger, don't they? Is what they wanted. It's the place of fantasies, cinema, the theater, it's where you go to dream. It's where you go to fantasize. And you've got this man who's lost in his own fantasies coming there. And if it had been Bond playing, it would have played in too much, I think, to the CIA fantasies. It would have firmly, even on rewatch, it would have still put you, we're in Dennis's world at the moment. But I think that's letting you know, because it's St. Valentine's Day Massacre, intentional or not that choice, it's letting you know, Actually, this isn't going to be Dennis's fantasy. This is going to be Sue Ann's fantasy. And it's a lot more violent than Dennis was ever expecting. I think that's such an important scene in the film. Just and just little touches. And I think it's such an incredibly subtle way in that film. It's spelling everything out, but you don't notice just how much it's spelling out until you reach the end and go back and watch it again. I always thought it would have been more appropriate had it been Dillinger because of the whole betrayal by the woman in red type of thing. But St. Valentine's Day Massacre is also pretty appropriate. Yeah, I, I noticed on the mar- the uh, the marquee outside, it doesn't have St. Valentine's Day Massacre or James Bond. It has in like Flint, the uh, another 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 spy movie, but a Fox owned one. So would have I don't know why they didn't use that other than I know this is the same one of the art directors, Jack Martin Smith, is also the art director on St. Valentine's Day massacre, so maybe he spoke up for that. I don't know, but but yeah, no, it's a great choice. It's funny on the commentary for the Blu-ray, they mentioned how they re-edited all those Corman's shots so that it plays faster than the actual Corman film, so that it would work for the rhythm of Pretty Poison, which is fine. I'm curious how much because there's two commentaries on the the Blu-ray, and I have to recommend anybody within the sound of my voice. It's a great Blu-ray, but to hear uh, Lawrence Terman talk about things and just like. 
oh yeah, I recut this picture. I didn't like the editor. You know, Ziegler wasn't that good. And I was the one that went in and I put these flash cuts in and I did this and I did this. And he's not bragging. He's a very humble man, but at times he's humble bragging at times, but he's especially like, just really like, uh, Lem Dobbs is on the commentary with him and he's just like, he's fawning over Lem Dobbs and some of these, you know, things that Dobbs is coming up with. And, and Dobbs is coming up with great things, but he's just like, oh, you're so smart. Oh my goodness. And just going on and on. And then Noel Black gets on his commentary track and he's just like, oh, I was surrounded by some really great people. And, you know, he is talking about, you know, Ziegler was a great editor and he was a great cinematographer and he was a great writer. Just going through all this stuff and just humble sounding guy and, and i'm just like well did Terman really actually do this editing stuff or not i'm very curious but regardless i the end product is is great and especially those little flashes of stuff the flashes of the of the band the flashes of the beach the flashes of the fire and uh even the flashback to her after she murders sam the night watchman and I think we get a little bit more in that flashback than we actually get in the movie proper, the the timeline proper. And I have to say that moment when she conks Sam on the head, because eventually Dennis pulls her into his orbit and is planning, well, he, he ends up getting fired from the plant. And so he plans a sabotage. And I think he might've even been planning it before, but he brings her with him. And the night watchman catches them. She conks him on the head with this massive wrench. And when she conks him the second time, I was just like, oh, okay. This is really something. She really means this. But what really drives it home, poor Sam isn't dead. And she pushes them into the water and rides this guy's head like it is just the most sexual thing. And to see Tuesday Weld with her skirt hiked all the way up and seeing those lovely thighs that she's got and just riding this guy to death. I was like, oh my God. And that was the moment for me where this film was, we were writing it about an eight and then suddenly jumped up to a 10 and became like one of my favorite films. It's such a memorable scene too. It's the look on her face as she's doing it, this sheer delight. Yeah, I always think of that scene as being longer than it actually is because uh, it lingers in the memory so much that it's only a few quick cuts of that of the, her riding the, the, the you know Sam's drowning body sexually. But it, it's such a jarring image that you just never forget it. When rewatching it yesterday for this, I, I thought they cut something. It feels like so short versus my memory of it. But like I, I, every version, I like that. That's how long it was cut. It makes one hell of an impression. And yeah, it just really cements the sex and death, the, uh, what is it, Eros and Thanatos of this film. And especially because each time they do something naughty, she gets real jazzed up. And even after she shoots her own mother, she's just like, hey, let's do it. You know, she wants him right that, there and then. And then to your point from earlier, he's not into it. He's just like, he... The thought of violence, the thought of killing Mrs. Stepanek, he ends up you know, running into the bathroom and throwing up. Meanwhile, she's there pouring bullets into her own mother with this wonderful look on her face, her tongue kind of hanging out, and she's just so into it. And then when she's done, okay, great, let's do it. Let's have some sex. I'm like, wow, 
after they first have sex, out of the makeout point, one of her first lines to him is, Dennis, when are we going to do something exciting? And they've just had sex. And then she says, I feel empty. And that's it. The only time she can get aroused is after murder. <clears throat> after anything violent like that is the only time where she seems genuinely happy. Even, I mean, it's foreshadowing again, but the scene where they picked up by the cops and Dennis is taken back in the back of a police car behind bars and she's free and happy and turning on the radio and laughing. It's like the only time she's really alive is if she's got someone in trouble, if she's doing something wrong, when she kills someone, she really comes to life. Everything else is an act. That's my favorite line in the film is is when he's talking about how, uh, don't you feel like everything's closing in? And she's like, I feel empty. Like, I always think of that as the line, like the signature line of the film for me, like my memory of it, like that. And when, when Perkins has got the line, like, it's my one and only life or whatever, like defending his right to freedom and it, the way he delivers it is so much more powerful than in a, any of the other uh, versions of the written page it's just i don't know because the way the entire thing plays it feels like what if what if norman bates got a second chance what if they rehabilitated them what if they forgave them that's what it always feels like it feels like that desperation in his voice and i don't even know that it always made sense to me why he was fleeing arbogast you know well not arbogast you know that's a Freudian slip but uh as an hour like why why does he skip town because it's a little bit more clear in the remake that he doesn't want to have the 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 baggage and the history of like his past carrying over to the new job but in in the Noel black telling of it he's just he just skips town for some high energy biscuits to like start a new you know without any kind of you know care to the fact that he's breaking parole and, and it, he's making it harder for himself ways that they never really explain they don't really explain that this job wasn't set up by Arbogast, or sorry, by Eisenhower, and or sorry, Eisenhower. I always say Eisenhower because I had a teacher named that in school. But yeah, he he got set up with this job. He goes there, and then when Eisenhower is just like hunting him down, like, oh, you did? They got find you, huh, Dennis? And I'm just like, I thought you set him up with this job, man. So I, I hear what you're saying. Do we think Dennis is completely fantasizing when he first approaches Tuesday World? Because I think he's deep in the fantasy by then. And I think that's why he's run. It's because the real world is too small for him. And I think that's why there's that line in the intro and he's like, oh, uh, a, a log in place isn't the best use of my talents. He finds the real world small and confining and fantasies are what bringing him alive. Because there's always been a thing about whether or not he's just manipulating her or whether he's gone himself. And I think he's actually flipped by the beginning of the film. Because when we first meet him, well, not when we first meet him, but when we first meet him in the new town, he's already taken the surveillance photos. He's listening to Russian broadcasts. When he's at the, the Pete's, it is Pete's, isn't it? The hot dog stand. When he's there and he walks away and he sees that guy stop and look up at him for a second. It's just a split second, but the look on his face, I don't think that's, oh, I can use this look. I think he's genuinely believing at that moment he's under surveillance. But I think it's just the fantasies that led him to run. It's the fantasies that led him wanting to explore life. And it's that thing about being kind of aware, but also trapped in the psychosis of, I can't really escape the past year. I need someplace else where I can really just fall into my fantasies without anyone watching over me yeah i think the thing 
pretty poisonous. It always feels like it's playing it both ways because I think what you're saying is correct. And I think that when he sees the man with the hood up with the car, I think he is afraid that it's legitimately like he's in a fantasy. Like, I don't think he's playing a game. I think he's also consciously using the whole mission to seduce Tuesday Weld's character in the way that like, I think of something like Jeffrey and Sandy and Blue Velvet. And it's like, he's using this as a kind of covert courtship. Like, and I think he knows it. Like, it's not like, like there's there's a there's a smile to it. Like there's there's times where he's breaking character. Like when he's talking about the true crime stories with the hot dog man. Like he's not totally in a paranoid delusional world all the time. But the fact that I think that yeah, I think you're right that the some of the paranoia is real. I think that yeah, the, the film goes back and forth and it's always ambiguous at to what point he's knowingly playing a game because it feels like he is playing a game more than he is compared to the how it reads on the page or in the novel. He doesn't seem that dangerous or that or that delusional he it feels like a guy who's too smart for a small town and he's bored and he's made you know a walter Mitty style kind of like dark take on it watching it again this week i was also reminded because it's the same dp david quaid who shot the swimmer another new england yes you know t- uh, literary kind of source material like about a guy and his fantasies and 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 also kind of you know probably commentary on america and american males and such but yeah but like yeah that same kind of you know when is it fantasy or not i think uh things part of why it never gets old for me like re-watching it because there is that ambiguity when it comes to those drugs that he gives uh sue ann are those drugs are they just yeah you know, sucrets or something inside of that tin i mean I, I, well, in the book they're meant to be like uppers aren't they in the book yeah I, I read a little bit of the book and i was just like wow they're really into taking pills so i wasn't sure if in the movie if we're meant to believe that those are drugs or not it feels like they should be but there's really no effect it's not like you know they get high and hang out or something i always saw them as as a placebo effect like he, he could be giving her breath mints or something but like we see her pov of the moon distorting but i always think that it's just you know she's just going along with it in the book it's like he's he's giving those he's given those pills to kind of stabilize his mood or his fantasies but you never really establish this and you you know that they're not government issued you know by the cia so what are they and i just always assume that you know they're tylenol or something and he's just it's just part of his rap you know in the car but they could be i mean they could be uh real drugs it's they never really spell it out yeah i think in the book they are meant to be real drugs and they were meant to be I think it says they were prescription and he stole a load of prescription pads so he could get more. I think that's what happened in the book, how he's got them. But one of the things that I really like about the film compared to the book is I think the book spells out a lot more. It's a really good book and I really like the terseness of the prose in it. But it's, it spells things out a lot more and it definitely makes Dennis into a more unsympathetic character than in the film, I think. He so reminded me of Holden Caulfield when I was reading that book. And I, and I think Holden Caulfield is one of the biggest assholes in the world. So we talked about, uh, mentioned the scene where he goes and throws up after the murder of the mother. I mean, they, they make love after the murder in the book. I mean, it's definitely like a more challenging character to, uh, and, and if you read reviews of the book, I mean, it just talks about them as like just young psychopaths. Like there's not any kind of nuance to like how people were receiving those characters in some of the reviews you read. Well, in the book, he intentionally goes there to murder her mother. They, he's not going there to run away with her. He's made a plan to go there and kill her, and then he can't, and he backs out of it. So, he's, yeah, he is definitely a harder-edged character than they made him for the film, and I think the film works better. I think 
it works better that he's kind of the patsy, well, he's definitely the patsy, even if we don't know it. The book reminded me more of some of the, like, the juvenile delinquent books that were being published around the same time, just the hardness of the prose and all the kids are wild thing going on with it. And the film is, charming is a difficult word to use, but I think Dennis is charming at times in the film, which he never is in the book. I really feel for this, Dennis. I feel for what he's doing, especially after you realize, oh, he's the one that's being manipulated. He's not the manipulator. Then you really start to feel for him. And then you start to really see those lies too, where it's like, oh, my mother, she came back. She snuck back just like your aunt snuck back. And before you you know, burned her alive kind of thing. All right. You knew she was coming. You know that this was going on. And then especially when they reveal that picture of her other boyfriend, which just opens up a whole other thing as far as are they still dating? Who is this guy? What's going on? And they do an interesting thing in the remake with that. But when it comes to this movie, you're just like, what? What is going on here? Like, how many guys is she stringing along? You know, I always thought he was a previous victim. That's why she's kept as a memento is what I always thought. I mean, the ending would definitely make me feel like that. Like this has been a long string and she, you know, I love that line when she's talking with Oh, I can't remember the actor's name. Cliff Barnes from Dallas is what I always think of him. Ken Kirchival. But she's talking to her next victim and she's like, oh yeah, he got caught. Psychopaths always get caught. And I'm just like, all right, is that foreshadowing for you? Or is that just you saying that you're never going to get caught? And of course they add Don Randolph at the end of it. But that was interesting reading the script and seeing that they had, because the book ends basically with him, with Dennis having the dead body in his trunk and calling the police and admitting everything. And we hear the siren or we don't hear the sirens. He doesn't hear the sirens. He just sees the policeman coming into the diner where he's at because it's not a hot dog stand in the book. What they did, what Semple did was he added a scene of Sue Ann courting her next victim, courting this Harry Jackson character and flirting with him and then what was great was you read that that's in the script but then there's the extra bit and he also added the whole thing of dennis and um uh, morton eisenhower also talking as well and he really like lays it on thick even says like the term pretty poison and just kind of gives eisenhower this whole like hey you better check her out next time you're in winslow check in on sue ann for me would you and then they like kind of like fold things in to be like, oh no, this needs to come here. This needs to come here. And then we need to have Eisenhower actually looking at her at the very end. And so they had the order of this, the scenes was different in the script, but you could tell it said like, this goes before <laughs> her uh, picking up this guy. Yeah. I, I was reminded this time watching it. I don't know if De Palma ever saw this, but the ending reminds me so much of sisters with somebody watching, watching the murderess waiting waiting to bring justice to the situation, but but maybe maybe they won't succeed. Like the murderers are still out there in 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 those stories. This whole movie reminded me a lot of Badlands, which is ironic because I think next week we're talking about true romance. Spoilers for Badlands folks, but hopefully you've seen that movie by now. But the way that Warren Oates is shot by Martin Sheen, I'm just like, this really looks similar to what's going on and this whole thing of like, I'm going to liberate you from your awful parent type of thing. But I also got a real rope feel to this as well. And I'm not exactly sure why. I mean, they're not 
thrill killers. They're not both thrill killers, but I guess it's that hesitation that the Farley Granger character has. And maybe it's just because I was th- also thinking about gun crazy. I think you mentioned that one before too, Bill, as far as this like, you know, murderous couple on the run. And then also John Dahl in that one, you know, it's kind of the opposite of, of rope. Like in, in gun crazy, he realizes, oh, Peggy coming is way out there. You know, this, the, that whole revelation of Sue Ann being the, the wild card. It's like, oh, you know, it feels like how, I mean, Dahl's pretty nuts as well, but Peggy coming really just takes the cake. And it's also a fascinating double bill with a film Bill mentioned earlier, Lord Love a Duck. If you just sit and think about it, what's going on in Lord Love a Duck is Tuesday World as a high school teenager who meets this gawky older man who goes to great lengths. I won't spoil what happens in Lord Love a Duck, but it's it's remarkably similar just in terms of basic plot beats and it's a nice double Tuesday World double bill, those two. And of course, this is going to be influenced by Bonnie and Clyde. It comes a year later. But I think what this is doing is, I mean, I think Noel Black said that he always had the uh, the femme fatale, the film noir stuff, and he said films like Double Indemnity and stuff like that. But it's really taken the romanticism of Bonnie and Clyde and just said, nope, this is what it would really be like. It's not the two lovers dying in a hail of bullets. Sorry if I spelled Bonnie and Clyde. But again, everyone should know that. It's saying, this is what it would be like. This is the truth of those situations. There was a lot of hesitation on Anthony Perkins to do anything that resembled Psycho. There's even that moment where his eyes are moving back and forth. And he was like, I really don't want to do that. It reminds me way too much of Norman at the end of Psycho. But also at the end of Psycho is the whole scene with Simon Oakland where he's laying out the crime. We don't necessarily get that here but we get something similar when she's being interviewed and i love i mean her performance is top notch through this whole thing but when she starts to express all these false emotions in front of all the cops and in front of eisenhower it's just like man oh man you are really doing a great job and just like they the cops basically take it over and they're like oh well you know, she was obviously forced into this and just really start to back her up and make up their own stories to fit her narrative even more and to just bolster her innocence. Yeah, and it goes back to that thing again. It's that thing of her so often being seen in whites and reds and just totally subverting them. And, you know, Perkins being seen in the blue. And even, and I thought this is, a, if this is intentional, it's a lovely touch. Her driving that blue car around, as in Perkins always in the blue shirt, as if she's, the film is just saying, look, she's always controlling him. There's the link. She's always the one in charge. She's always in the driver's seat. A, what a lot of this film, I think, is doing is saying, this person is one of the untouchable people because she's beautiful and she's all American and she's decked under the symbols of America. And I think it's almost like, to bring her down would be to bring something of America. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Erica down. It's it's almost like Bath Beale in, in the film. It's I genuinely think there's a thing there in the script and the film where they say, America, what are we doing? We have children parading with rifles for a high school drill, which... I didn't realize you guys did. I've lived in America, and I didn't realize the majorettes had rifles until I actually saw this film. They might not do it after Columbine. They're usually white wooden rifles. They're no, nothing real at all. So I was not surprised when I saw those rifles. I was like, oh, yeah, that's what majorettes do. It's, it's a, such an insane thing when you think about it. Even a symbolical gun, it's, it's a weird thing to give high school girls and say, yeah, just learn to parade with those. Yeah, it, uh, Pretty Poison is asking, what's wrong in America? Where's the poison coming from in America? And again, a weird link. It it, it flows into, I think, um, Killing of America, the Lennon Schrader documentary about guns in America. This is crime in America. This is what we do. And I think all these things kind of flow from each other. And Pretty Poison is like one of, there were several films made in around 68, and I would have counted The Swimmer definitely as one of them, but things like they are in the 60s, but they look him forward to the 70s, and they kind of trapped in this Netherlands. And I'm thinking of films like, um, not a film I think as good as this, but like Charlie from the same year, and Rachel Rachel, the Paul Newman film, they all desperately wanted to be the 70s now, but they're not quite there yet. And I always associate Pretty Poison with that group in the films. There's a certain look to them, there's a certain feel to them that's not of the 60s from a couple of years earlier but not quite 1970s I, American cinema yet. I thought you were going to say Targets also. I was oh, just yes. about to... <laughs> targets, yeah. yes, Targets, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I was like, when was Targets? Because that is so like rips off the facade of what's going on and just the casual murder and patricide and matricide and that. Oof. Yeah, I don't have them side by side, but you mentioned when you talk about Badlands, I'm wondering how similar the dress that Sissy Spacek wears after the murder of the father is to the dress that Tuesday Weld is wearing in the murder of the mother. But I same kind of like that little girl kind of like it's the most girlish they look in the in, in those respective films, just like at the time of the murder. I'll tell you, I was so happy to see Don Fellow show up as one of these two offbeat detectives. And I, I think he's the one that wears the, um, the earpiece. Yeah. Which so reminds me of of Gordon Cole from uh, Twin Peaks. But uh, Don Fellows is for, well, I don't even know if people would know him from this. I mean, mostly I know him as uh, a general in Superman 2. But of course, for me, his biggest role, he's only on screen for maybe 10 minutes, is uh, Colonel Musgrove in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's one of the two guys, him and um, William Hookins are the two guys that come to visit Indiana Jones and he explains what the staff of Ra is and you know gives him the whole history lesson. He's so great. And just to even to see this like 
12 years beforehand. I was like, oh, I know that guy. What a great face he's got. I don't know, can really put it together, like what it means other than just it's a great visual motif is um, when he first leaves the trailer to go start his new job, he's running through dark woods in an otherwise sunny environment. Like he's, he's choosing the shadowy path. And I noticed that they repeat that when Tuesday Well drops him off at the end to like spend his last night on his own in the woods before they killed the mother. And it's like that same kind of like wandering through dark woods, like surrounded by sunlight. And that also reminded me of the swimmer. Like, even though it's like this kind of sunny small town America, there's this kind of sinister kind of gothic image. He's like within the town that that's where he's, that's where he's drawn to. And it's like a, a transitional moment in his life. He's got that moment when he's waiting, when he can't go back to his place anymore. And uh, he's supposed to come over to Sue Ann's the next day and the day that he ends up killing her was supposed to kill her mother for her, where he's going through the forest again, another forest scene. And he eventually comes on the car and the lovers are in the car and the guy gets out and beats him up a little bit. That is always interesting to me. And they change that a little bit in the, the TV movie, the remake in a very interesting way that he actually goes and he visits Sam's house and gets to see his widow and his widow's family and Sam's family. And I don't know how that plays out in the book or not. Um, I don't remember him seeing Sam's family in that, but I do remember him kind of running through the woods and just it being like a, a longer period of time. It feels like he's really, you know, thinking about a lot of things before that next day. Yeah, I think I think we're probably all going to agree that the TV movie is not the superior telling of this story. But one thing that I think it does that is kind of ambitious is it does try to flesh out the Sam character and even do something more interesting with the lover of the mother. It's trying to do some small things to develop characters that are not really that well drawn in the original film. Whether that that's necessary is debatable, but it does try to do a few things that that was an interesting touch. I forget. In the novel, there's a point when he falls asleep in the woods and wakes up to find her attacking him. Do you know which film? The night that uh, they kill Sam? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, he falls asleep and wakes up and, like, she's trying to kill him in the woods. Yeah. It's when the police um, take them back. They don't pick them up in the car, they get out, and they go back to her mother's house. And he says something to her, like, your daughter tried to kill me tonight. And she says, well, I just saved your life by not pressing charges so yeah that's that's that night yeah that would be the same night yes because yeah because in the film it's they uh, they get busted for potentially necking it like the make out point in the town lascivious but- carriage yes <laughs> yeah yes. Yes. i do love how he reads about that in the newspaper about the you know the, this other case and they're like oh well yeah that's the make out spot the people around the hot dog stand and then it's later on when he's driving with uh, with her, and he's just like, oh, yeah, stop here. And it just so happens to be the make-out spot in her whole thing. He's so not smooth uh, when he's trying to make out with her. And she's just like, you know, he, he does the whole thing of like, oh, hurry up and kiss me. You know, people like to look at couples when they're kissing kind of thing. And uh, she's just like, Dennis, the, uh, the, the gear shift. <laughs> I think from that's the moment I think you can definitely say, he knows because when he gets oh this is an old cia trick and she's like yeah sure it is even if she doesn't know before then she knows that but can i ask i this film is telling you all the time not to believe anything anyone's saying 
constantly. So did Siwan's mother actually call Azanawa, or did Siwan do it herself and pretend to be her mother? I think she called him herself. I know in the remake, they try to make that a bit more obvious. Really clunkily so when, when they do it. The film had me doubting things so much that I even have wondered on occasion if Anthony Perkins' story to her about what happened with his aunt is completely true. One of the things that throw me about that scene when watching it back and watching it back is he uses that phrase again in that scene. She probably thought we were doing lascivious carriage. And it's just like, wait, is he actually telling her the full truth? Was he making up another story and he's maybe a bit more guilty of his aunt's murder than an accident and he's just reaching for things to make that story up on the point? So you get a feeling he's never heard that phrase before he sees it in the newspaper. And he uses it at least, what, three times in the movie? Yeah, he uses it with As an Hour also. Yeah, no, he uses it, yeah, like it's a pet phrase that he's obsessed with. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I always wondered even if when, when Suen says that her father died in Korea, if that's a lie, because in the, in the remake, he just left the family. Like, so it's less dramatic, but I always wonder, yeah, everybody's like telling lies, like you're saying. Um, but yeah, and when he talks about playing doctor, I mean, what is that code for? Because we know he's all about fantasies that like, you know, are partly seduction, but partly also like very dramatic, you know, like, like there's, there's real consequences if certain things don't happen. I don't know, but um, but like I said, like that ambiguity, I think, is part of what keeps it kind of rewatchable and then open to you know multiple interpretations like that. Well, in the book, isn't it that it's not his aunt who died; it was her daughter, his cousin, and she was the girl that he was playing house with? Isn't that? Am I? Yeah, no, you're right. right. It's a, it's yeah, yeah. I I mean, towards the end, he's kind of recounting that again. It almost sounded like he burned down the whole church that she and all the congregation was in. Yeah. did you guys pick that up at all, or am I just completely nuts? No, I think that I think that that's true. Yeah, I, I mean the the novel. I mean, he's focused on fire throughout it, which I don't think they they emphasize at all, really. In the in the, story. I mean, like other than that quick cut of to the burning building, but you don't really associate him with being drawn to things that resemble flames. I mean, I don't know if the the red vials are like he's drawn to that because it reminds him of fire and he loves fire. Like I don't think he's a pyromaniac. The way that, like, the book kind of presents him as. Fire! 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 (laughs) I can't believe we've got this far into the recording and no one's mentioned one of the greatest lines from the film. We do have a great capacity for loving. Oh, that's such a good line. Yeah, it's in the script twice. Because it's only in the film with, uh, with, with Sue Ann, but he says it to the boss in the, in a cut scene in the script also. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, the boss played by what? Dick O'Neill. Holy shit. He is so good. He's one of those character actors where as soon as he showed up, I was like, okay, I know exactly how he's going to be in this because he's the same in every single time. Man, he is great. I mean, I think I mostly know him for taking of Pelham 123, but he's been in a lot of movies and a lot of things that we've talked about on this show over the years. Great face as well. Just one of those faces you don't see much anymore. I thought of the other film that from the late 60s that I meant to mention as well in relation to this. Last Summer. Yeah. I think it was in the air and they were looking forward to the, to the new thing, but there was something definitely in the air. of The kids aren't right. You get that feeling so strongly from a lot of films at that time. Yeah, well, the whole trope of that 
kind of liberal social worker kind of like benevolent character does feel like a juvenile delinquent movie. I mean, because all the other authority figures are corrupt. I mean, it's, you know, jerky cops, jerky boss, you know, you know, but, you know, but uh, as an hour is, is like almost like, like a Capra character in terms of like his benevolent kind of like just give him one more chance. Oh, you're, you're in love. Good. Well, we'll just, you know, just, just keep your nose clean, kid. Like it's just, you know, it's, it's not a realistic kind of character and it's, but it works for both stories. I think that's one thing I thought was, it was interesting to make that character a little bit more cynical in the, in the remake. I mean, that's, I, I guess they kind of had to, cause it's a different kind of way of telling that story more like, well, we'll get to that, I guess. But uh, yeah, no, I think it's, yeah, the last summer is interesting to, yeah. Once Dennis starts to talk about, oh, I met a girl and what does he say? Like she's clean and good. Yeah. <laughs> and yes. Like, okay. I think yeah. that's when he says, well, now you're pulling my chain or something. Like he, he, you gild in the lily. Yeah. You have you're a terrible gilding habit the of gild in the lily. Yeah. Well, it's when he talks about her as like leading the majorettes or whatever that like, oh, you're getting carried away now. But yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. I think if this movie has one, bad moment for me it's what Terman tried to do with an optical at the very end he does a a fake close-up of her head like he took the film and pushed in onto to sue ann's head right after she's picking up this new and footloose guy that she uh met at the hot dog stand I think that's a horrible moment um because i was just like wait what's going on why is the film getting bigger and grainier and just yeah, <laughs> what's happening and then it took until i read the or listened to the commentary for him to say oh yeah i wanted this to, to i wanted the audience to realize that this is all taking place in her head and i'm like well first off i don't think that it is and second off i think that's a really bad way of doing it because this just isn't successful at all if anything i was just like whoa what happened during the transfer did the, did the negative slip or something just thinking about this film and what comes in like American film in the late sixties, I was thinking about how it's a studio film for Fox. Like it is, we were talking about these, these character actors. Like it's the art direction is by people that work on things like Planet of the Apes and Hello Dolly. Like it's got like, I mean, you might have a first time director who's getting hired off of a of a short film, like it, like a little bit of a whiff of what you think of with the new Hollywood cliche, like you know, first time directors kind of reinventing the form. This feels like. Like it's still it's still a director trying to make a Hollywood film. Like it doesn't feel like it's breaking formal rules in a way. I mean, some of that quick cutting. I mean, like you're saying, it might not even come from Noel Black. It might be like coming from a producer who had like a gargantuan date with the graduate, trying to spice it up a little bit. But it is feeling like. But I think about this alongside Argets. I think of another classicist. I think of um, somebody that is trying to make a, a you know a tight modern thriller. I don't think of this as something as arty as badlands and not that and i don't say that in disparaging i love badlands but it's like it's not trying to be radical formally but maybe 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 the ideas i guess when i think about like that that kind of like um characters verbally challenging status quo like this is not that kind of film but maybe some of the ideas being raised are uh are more subversive than something like psycho it's got that kind of looks like a 60s film but not white it's this weird little hinterland that every decade has them that period transition where films aren't quite the films from the decade before but quite aren't yeah structurally in terms of the filmmaking techniques it's very much a is conservative from that point of view and there's no big speeches other than you'd say anthony hopkins one at the uh, hopkins perkins one at the end of uh, um the pretty poison 
but yeah, but just that there's that deep subversion running through the themes of it that aren't there in the way it's shot. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break and we'll be back right after these messages. Hello, everyone. This is Malcolm McDowell. I just want to say that uh, this is a request to listeners of the Projection Booth podcast to become patrons of the show via patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Projection Booth. That's pretty simple. I think you can do that. It's a great show, and Mike, he provides hours of great entertainment. So now it's time to give back, my little droogies. Settle down and take a listen and have a sip of the old Malocco. And then you'll be ready for a little of the old in-out, in-out, real hard show. Bye-bye. All right, we are back, and we're talking about Pretty Poison. And just like I always say, like any good film, Pretty Poison deserved a remake. Or maybe not, I don't know. I almost said it readapted, but really, they're not doing a readaptation of this novel. They are going right back to the simple screenplay and going from that. I don't know if there was much more from the book that they tried to re-add. So this was 1996, made for TV, and it sticks to the 68 version so much that I just kept wondering, why are you even bothering? I won't say that this was like a completely awful thing. I found some good things about it, you know, referred to it a few times already. I love Lynn Thigpen, um, her doing Eisenhower. I thought it was pretty cool to have her as this parole officer. You have to say that I didn't really care for the main actors as much, especially the Dennis character. I didn't think that he was as compelling as Anthony Perkins, but he did a decent job. What did you guys think of this? It's funny because I went into it with low expectations until I saw that it was directed by David Burton Morris, the director of Loose Ends and Patty Rocks, and like a, a proper auteur like of indie film in some way. And I saw I was like, okay, this guy actually has as many films I like as Noah Black on his resume. Maybe he can do something with it. And then it is kind of t- trapped by like the made-for-television erotic thrillers of the 90s kind of aesthetic that I think it just, if you already have the Perkins Weld version in your head, it's very hard for those actors that come from Melrose Place of Beverly Hills and O, you know, to really kind of, you know, make you forget about superior, le- like less pretty boy television kind of take on the material. But it's, I don't think it's unwatchable. Like, I think it's, it's, it's funny. We mentioned like uh, Blue Velvet or Twin Peaks. And like, I did think about Lynch a little bit in the way that like it goes from fast cutting to slow motion, like slow motion of the, of the fire from the cigarette lighter, slow motion in the, the way that the body falls down the stairs and the murder. Like, it feels like, I don't know. I mean, I, I try not to be one of those guys that finds Lynch in anything that is like quirky or offbeat, but I do wonder if there's a, if Lynch was influenced by Pretty Poison and if that comes back around to the way that they handled the darkness and suburbia theme this time around. And I thought it was interesting to have Pray for Rain do the soundtrack, who I associate with a lot of Alex Cox movies. So it's like, not people I associate with straight to TV kind of productions. Like it's like people that have some kind of hip credits on their resume. It's not just all journeymen, you know, but yeah, it is kind of, 
kind of kind of forgettable i think i mean it's it's i don't think it's you know it, i think that there's some interesting things that they do fleshing out the sand character and like and how that death is responded to or the way the the mother's lover which we can get to like there's there's interesting wrinkles to it but it's i mean it falls pretty far short i think of, of the of the theatrical version the first time i saw this the remake was in the last few days for this and I tend to, whenever I'm doing the podcast, whenever I'm talking about, I tend to rewatch it a few times in the week beforehand. So I had the 68 one playing in my head, and the instant this remake started, it was Once a Pretty River. I just went, okay, I think I'm going to tune out of this. But I watched it, and yeah, they're trying to do one or two interesting things. But what loses it for me are, I can't remember the actor's name, but the actor who's playing Dennis I just found to be a complete void and you need to have something there. Uh, again, I'm blanking on the actor's name, but the actor... Grant Show is his name. Sue Ann in this one was obviously psychotic from the beginning. Clearly so. I think it doesn't trust this audience. I think it over-explains everything and I kind of felt my intelligence was being insulted by the end when she's on the phone to Asenauer. And these, there's all these cuts to, is he there right now? Can you not talk to me? Are you trying to tell me something? All this stuff just really, really clunkily over explaining it. And it killed any goodwill I might have had or the interesting things it does. Because I, I always think that's kind of, you can, you can kind of understand it a lot more back into the 60s when they, they added the book into the film or the, you know, the end of Psycho explaining everything. You can kind of understand it's still a relatively young medium by that point. But by the 90s, when you were over explaining things that much, it, it just shows a lack of respect and trust for the audience. I always find that with those things and they didn't need to do it. I'm not sure why, but I will agree. Lynn Thigpen, yes, every time. Yes. Why did they make Sue Ann's mother that much more sympathetic? It's like a completely different character from the 68 film. Yeah, she is very sympathetic, and she, I mean, Beverly Garland is no slouch, and plus she runs a great hotel, folks, let me tell you that, but Michelle Phillips is freaking gorgeous, and I'm just like, okay, I know he says in the in the 68 version, oh, your mother's very attractive, and in this one, really mean it. It's like, oh, wow, yeah, she's, she's stunning, and yeah, I, I would want to hang out with her. It's like, oh, she's the cool mom kind of thing, rather than being really bitchy is what i mean beverly garland was supposed to be bitchy and she brought that very well oh excellently she's superb in the film but michelle phillips yeah i was like she's got this wild child daughter and i feel so bad for her whereas i feel very sympathetic at least 90 percent of the film towards sue ann in 68 i'm just like oh yeah her mom's a real tyrant and in this one you're like oh no this poor lady she's got this awful daughter of I really, yeah, I sympathize with her completely. Yeah, Sue Ann's calling the shots from the beginning in this one. Like you're saying, she's she's coded as crazy from the get-go. It's like you don't even, there's not really a twist to it. But she's even sitting at the counter waiting for him in this version. Like It's not like he bumps into her when she wants change for a quarter. She's waiting for the prey in this one, and she's instigating all the sexual activity in it. And yeah, like you said, like the mother is more sympathetic. So it's like she's clearly the only villain in this way of, of telling the story whereas yeah there's there's more there's more shades of gray in the original telling of it 
I wonder if the way they play Dennis in this one is kind of out of its depth and obviously out of his depth from the beginning and being trapped in a situation. I'm wondering if the Twin Peaks storyline where James starts getting set up for a murder was an influence on it. It yeah, could be. It could be. Yeah. I always saw that as being very Postman Noah's Rings twice, like Lynch was, oh, let's put this little film noir inside of the second season. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. This reminds me more of that kind of 90s jailbait noir kind of poison ivy the crush kind of feeling you yeah, know like Amy that's Fisher kind of story. feels like yeah. more what it's going for and i think i mean it's it's very faithful to the the noel black telling of it i mean right that yeah all the changes that they make to the novel like say like are retained they don't have high protein biscuits they have high protein health bars i mean there's a couple of like weird like dialogue changes but it's even it feels like so similar well isn't Lorenzo so simple even credited on this one yeah yeah yeah, it's Lorenzo Simple Jr. still gets credit. And then it's Brian L. Ross also gets credit. But it's not a whole lot more that Ross brought to the party with this. Other than, I thought it was kind of an interesting twist talking about Poison Ivy or, or Amy Fisher or any of these kind of things. Where you find out that it's, uh, that she, Sue Ann, seems to be having an affair with her mother's lover, Benjamin. And... The way that they handled that, I was just like, whoa, what's happening here? Because we see in the 68 version, she's like, oh, there's my mother and her lover. That's pretty much it. We don't get a whole lot more with them. And this one, you get somewhat of a similar scene. But then Dennis goes up with a rock and smashes the front window of the lover's car. And you very clearly see in the front his personalized license plate of Benjamin. And then later on in the film, rather than it being a picture of an ex quote unquote ex-boyfriend in Sue Ann's room, she's like, Oh, that's my brother. And she says it's my brother. And then he said, Oh, he looks like Benjamin. She's like, Oh yeah, isn't that weird? Isn't that sick? Like her mother is having sex with somebody that looks like her brother. Okay, this is really strange. And then at the very end, it's like, oh yeah, she's getting into this car rather than it being, you know, Cliff Barnes that she's seducing at the end. She's getting into Benjamin's car and off they go. And I was like, oh, that's a twist I didn't see coming and a twist that I think was a little unearned. They're acknowledging the changing times and maybe that age gap that could talk about in the original film. Like They're making it like, this is her MO. Like She seduces older guys. They, even the fact that they make the guy that she seduces at the end talk about, well, my mom doesn't want me going out. My dad doesn't want me going out with older guys. Like They change the dialogue so that that's that's her reason like it's it's clear that like it's not like in the ending of the original film where it's like it feels like oh she's dating someone her own age because he feels like a younger guy no they're like they're commenting on the dialogue they're like this is an older man that we've got to get around it like and this is this is just what she does so maybe that's they think maybe they're thinking like they deflect some kind of criticism potentially with that kind of age gap i don't know i mean it's the 90s it's not like now but it's still something that would have been more talked about than in 60 68 what this is really missing though for me compared to the original, is that feel of sexual dysfunction running through the entire town. Because it is pretty much the entire town. Dennis is sexually messed up. Sue Ann is sexually messed up. She looks at the adults who are having perfectly normal affairs, and she says it's always dirty when adults do it, and things like that. And even in this town, even the police are more interested in stopping at lovers' lanes just to catch young couples together, you know? And that feeling of deep repression in a town that's always been there for me when I watch Pretty Poison is just 
kind of missing from this remake. Yeah, although I mean, it's more leering than the original film. I mean, even right down to having like this kind of quasi De Palma, like like he's in the hallway and it's like she's like seeing her like with her shirt off, like just through a, an open door. It's just like this. This feels like so heightened to be unreal, but it's like um, I mean, that's you know, even changing it from like the drum majorettes to cheerleaders, like everything is becoming more erotic thriller territory than before. Just to go back to something that we were talking about earlier. Do you have any, either of you have any theories about what actually was the truth where it comes down between the two commentary tracks, the one with Noel Black and the one with Lawrence Turman? And like you mentioned earlier, Mike, they are so different. Any ideas what the actual truth is on this film, on the shooting of it, on the actual making? Like who was responsible for what? Because Noel Black definitely comes across as better, and it, he really endeared himself to me in, in the commentary track when he tells that story about Anthony Perkins. Oh, and, boy, uh, yeah. The, yeah. That's a the, great about... story. I, I just really want to recap that story real quick. It, it was such a good story that I just want to share it. And again, by the Blu-ray, listen to this yourself, but just this very quick thing where he Black went to Perkins and was offering him this role, had gotten the script to him and his agent. And Perkins is like, listen, I'm in this play for another month. Yeah. And I could give them my two week notice, but if I do that, they're going to shut down after that. They're not going to put in an understudy for the last two weeks of the show. They're just going to scrap it. So rather than me screw over all my fellow actors, why don't you just let me finish this play? Give me two more weeks on top of that. And then I'll come do your movie. I was just like, oh, that's so nice that he was looking out for his fellow actors so much. Yeah, and Noel Black really endeared himself to me in that commentary with so many nice things to say and so much praise. And Lawrence Timmon, he kind of put me off a little bit because it's exactly like you said, it felt like a 90-minute humble brag. <laughs> they really did. And I was, and I'm just wondering if that's skewing my perspective a bit of when I'm like, Oh, you were responsible for everything on this film, were you? Everything? So, I don't know, do you guys have any idea what the truth was? Because I haven't been able to figure it out. I mean, I don't know much more than what the commentaries lay out. I know that, that Noel Black died in 2014, and that second commentary that you're talking about was done after he was not really around to challenge or defend himself from the comments made. And I actually think it's kind of cruel that Lem Dobbs is even trashing the other movies that he made, like Cover Me Babe, which... I think are not uninteresting movies. They might not be pretty poison level, but they're not like some of the worst movies ever made, which is kind of how they're portrayed in the uh, in the commentary. So it's a little bit fair. And Noel Black, I mean, didn't have the career. Maybe Pretty Poison seems to suggest he would have been set up for it. So maybe he did benefit from having a very solid team around him of people that are like industry vets working for Fox, like kind of supporting this, you know, this first time feature film director. I mean, it doesn't feel like someone uncertain about what they're doing but i don't know if free from that situation if he ran into trouble i mean i don't know i don't have a sense of him as an auteur quite so clearly i haven't seen jennifer on my mind in a long time and i know that he kind of does a few things after that and uh i mean both both him and david morris richard the remake i mean have their battles in in hollywood and like you know driven to tv movies and television to stay working as filmmakers i mean they both ran into fair amount of challenges in that business but yeah i don't i don't know i mean i don't know how much anthony perkins really talks about the making of it tuesday weld never seemed to want to talk about it and so i mean i know tuesday weld and, and noel black didn't get along on that film and that's something that 
might color her own impression of of the final product because I think it always kind of irked her that that's like one of her big cult movies because I don't think she I don't think it turned out how she was hoping it would. But it's interesting because even though that's the case, I mean that really sets her up from graduating. I mean that and Lord Love a Duck kind of like set her apart from like doing you know teeny bopper kind of parts into doing things like a safe place and played as it lays and thief and all these kind of more mature interesting character parts that she does at least for a good 20 years i know that first time one of the first times i was on projection but we talked about played as it lays people haven't seen it but love pretty boys and that's the great a great reteaming of of uh, anthony perkins and tuesday weld you know as actors but such different parts still such great chemistry and i think that they are why maybe the, the uh, Pretty Poison, the theatrical version is like so, you know, so much more compelling than uh, yeah, one of the many reasons that it's more compelling than the 90s take on it. Well, it was interesting too, the way that Black was talking about how he was calling her character, she starts off as Juliet and ends up as Lady Macbeth. And I was like, okay, yeah, I can really see that. But the way that it sounds like she wanted to play it was to be more Lady Macbeth through the entire thing. Which I think is what we get in the 96 version. We get to see, like you were saying, as she's unhinged right from the beginning. So it was really smart, if that was the case, for him to really stand firm and be like, no, no, she needs to be innocent. We need to believe that she's not crazy throughout this entire, you know, through the first half of this. Like, it needs to be a gradual thing until you realize, oh, there's something much more dangerous about her than about him. Yeah, the impression I always got of it was that Noel Black was, you know, was his first feature. He knew what he wanted from setting up shots. He, he knew from a technical angle. He just didn't know how to work with actors, and that's what was frustrating in Tuesday World. But, you know, if people had... It seems like he didn't have much support on the film. Real support is just reading between the lines a little bit. And with real support and learning how to work with actors he could have gone on to that brilliant career because pretty poison proves he can certainly make a masterpiece yeah well, i i wonder if if he had come up through independent productions and earned his place on that set i think you know when you're talking about people that have been like you know you have people that were working on you know even st louis and things that like, like you know you have people that are like old hollywood vets like here's this kid who has like one sh- short film that won some prizes and now he's telling us all what to do like they it probably was that kind of lack of respect that I think you hear stories about like Brian De Palma trying to make get to know your rabbit, you know, like, you know, people from the outside, they were not greeted by that system. I mean, they had to work their way up through TV, like Spielberg or like, you know, like th- those guys did not, you know, all these young movie brat generation people were not, I mean, they might have been given like technical support from the best crafts people that Fox had, but I don't know that there was like a uh, an invitation to collaborate that I think was Maybe there. I mean, the film still come out great anyway, but I, I sometimes wonder what would happen if he started off with independent productions on the East Coast and then you know, found his footing because I think it kind of humbled him in a way to have nothing else kind of connect the way Pretty Poison did. And that, and even that, like, I mean, Pauline Kael and critics lionized it, but it was you know a commercial failure. It didn't like, I don't know, cult films ever really open too many doors for you. I mean, they might help the actors, you know, get taken more seriously, but I don't know. Didn't Kale say it was buried by the studio? They didn't do preview shots, uh, preview screenings or anything for it. I found that ad for the movie that's a movie they don't want you to see. It was like when they, and I'm like, well, who's they in this studio? Yeah. But is it the studio that's also advertising this? Because who else is going to advertise the movie for you? Yeah, I found that interesting. And there was 
real dearth of stuff written about this. I mean, other than those reviews at the time, hasn't been a whole lot of appreciation of this movie, unfortunately. And I, I just always found this to be such an unfortunately hidden gem. Yeah, well, I mean, if you compare it to Targets, I mean, Targets was also kind of buried. And both of them, I mean, it's a time when you have all these political assassinations and, you know, maybe, you know, some kind of cautionary attitude towards violent, realistic stories. So, yeah, in both cases, they got discovered by movie cult people that, like, you know, seek out better than average genre movies and like these were both like thrillers that were smarter than you know roger corman but i love roger corman movies but like you know the like the like the typical grindhouse drive-in fare like these were a little bit craftier kind of productions and and you know word of mouth and people like danny perry writing chapters on them and books like cult movies and people find them i mean i i was seeking it out as a kid in the 90s you know, when they had no video life, I mean, that that's something that Fox really did not even care to keep it in circulation in the video boom. I mean, it never came out through Key or any of those kind of companies. And I think the DVD came out very belatedly. And then even the Blu-ray that we're talking about, Twilight Time, I mean, that was limited edition. I mean, hopefully people can still find it if they want to hear it, but it's it's never really been. And I, I guess what Fox is now Disney. So who knows when the next edition of Pretty Poison would even come out. I mean, it's just not, it's not a film that's had a lucky go of it as far as being widely available. Anthony Perkins has plenty of films like that. I mean, played as it lays, it's never come out on home video to this day. I mean, took a lot for Winter Kills to come out. Cool killer. This is getting kind of re, you know, examined in the wake of the folk horror kind of boom. And even the trial, the Orson Welles film, I mean, it's not as widely available as you'd think, given like how good it is. And like, it's an Orson Welles movie with Anthony Perkins. But Anthony Perkins has a lot of films like Last of Sheila that like are getting kind of like rediscovered in recent years. And hopefully this one will gain momentum as far as I can do audience but yeah it's it's never been the easiest film to see even when it's been in print so I was looking at that ad and it's the movie they tried to hide and it's quotes from the Martin Nelman Toronto Star review Pauline Kale from the New Yorker Joseph Morgenstern from Newsweek and Albert Johnson from Film Quarterly and the person that was putting out or the organization that was putting out this ad was now available in 16 millimeter from New Cinema Canada. So it address it, you know, on Young Street in Canada. So it, this was not Fox advertising their own product. This was a you know, rental house being like, hey, come on and then get this on 16 for your own enjoyment because nobody else is going to show it to you. Well, it's a shame. It does show that like critics and people writing about it, I mean, can keep a film that the studio never had faith in and tried to bury. I mean, people still find it. People still talk about it. And, you know, I mean, I don't know. It even got a remake in the 90s. Like, why would they remake that? Other than if there was some kind of interest in that story. And they even kept the title. They didn't have to keep that. Danny Perry, like you say, has probably done a lot of good work for this because a lot of the books, a lot of the films in the cult movies books or the film fanatic book, People are seeking out who are now in positions like you guys who are making it these films more known to people, and I think that's why because of the like the the non mainstream criticism and non mainstream film writers are why films like um, like Possession got the big reappraisal in that it's it's people who are passionate fans, and for so many films that came through those period books, I think it's. The fans who are doing it, the fans who have got into positions of power, I guess, and they're just, you know, pressuring for them. And I'm so glad for that. Yeah, well, Danny Perry, I mean, had cult movies book, which has entries on Perkins and Tuesday Weld. And, you know, I mean, he's 
he's probably the person that maybe think like, oh, Tuesday Well was actually like this, not just this beautiful blonde actress that, you know, was in like films like Dobie Gillis and think that she chose interesting projects and like her films were not big money makers, but there's a lot of buried gems and Lord Love a Duck and Safe Place and Ladies at Lays. And I mean, and even things like Looking for Mr. Goodbar that have like big cult followings despite distribution challenges. I mean, it's, I don't know, it is heartening. And hopefully people will hear this and, and seek out Pretty Boys. I mean, you can, I mean, as, as of right now, you can find it on YouTube and places like that. Like it's still, people still thrust it into the, uh, thrust it out there even when it's going through the uh, in and out of print on home video. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. From the director of Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop 2 comes a movie that will leave you breathless. Christian Slater, Patricia Arquette, Dennis Hopper, Val Kilmer, Gary Oldman, Brad Pitt, Christopher Walken, in a Tony Scott film that critics are calling a Bonnie and Clyde for the 90s. True romance. Rated R. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Tony Scott's true romance. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Bill and Darren. So, Bill, what is the latest with you, sir? The main show supporting characters has been on a little bit of a break this year. I've been doing uh, shows for Directors Club with Jim Laskowski. Just did one on Joan Micklin Silver. And I'm working on a, uh, right now it's a 12-hour project on Jean-Luc Godard, which hopefully I can finish soon. But uh, uh, I, I've been doing a few home video projects. I just um, had a commentary with Amanda Reyes, the second side edition of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and one with my late friend Travis Crawford on Death Dream for 101 Films, the Bob Clark film. Those are both UK releases, but I think you you know if you have a region free player, they're, they're out there. But that uh, work out a few things, but no, the latest, I guess. And Darren, how about yourself? See, I just feel so inferior coming after Bill. Oh, it's amazing. But yeah, no, I'm, like I said, last time I was on, I mostly record stuff for Patreon with Barry Dodds, stand-up comedian and my fellow film po- podcaster. And yeah, we've just recorded an episode on the Alex Garland film, Man. We do a series every month that takes up a week that's just looking at a subgenre of cinema. So we've just... We're going to be releasing one on home invasion films very soon. And yeah, just keeping on with that and just enjoying podcasting. It's really nice to talk with people who are so passionate about film. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.